0: It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore, from WBEZ.
1: 100 years ago, in the summer of 1919, race relations in America reached a boiling point. Some feared we were heading toward a race war. Others were hoping for one. World War I was over, and many black soldiers were coming home demanding more respect and equality than when they left. At the same time, many whites wanted to preserve the old social order, at times violently. The Red Summer of 1919 saw waves of lynchings and riots. In Washington, D.C., white soldiers started riots that lasted for four days. Fifteen died, and dozens were injured. Smaller riots erupted in Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, and more than three dozen other cities. Chicago saw some of the worst of the violence. Here, in the course of a week, there were riots, bombings, and arson. 38 people were killed. Hundreds were injured. I'm Jessica Popovac, filling in as Curious City editor, and I'm answering a question about Chicago during that red summer. It's from Stephen Boone, who lives in the Woodlawn neighborhood. I was curious to know how the 1919 race riot started in the city of Chicago. How did it affect the city then, and how is it affected the city now? Stephen's asking a big question, so we're doing two episodes on it. Next time, we'll tackle how the riots changed Chicago. But for now, we're sticking to how they started. There were many tensions between Chicago's whites and blacks at that time, and some of those remain today. So it's important to understand how they erupted into such widespread violence. To learn more, I visit Claire Hartfield. She grew up in Chicago and remembers hearing her African-American grandmother tell stories about that summer and when her streetcar was attacked by an angry white mob. Hartfield recently published the book A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919.
0: So July 27, 1919, was an extraordinarily hot day in Chicago.
1: It had been in the 90s all week, and it was a Sunday. So naturally, the beaches were packed. And that's where a group of black teenage boys were headed.
0: They hitched a ride on a produce truck, Um, and then jumped off at exactly the right place and went across the train tracks. The right place was their hiding spot near the Keeler Brewery. And they had put lots of time into building this 14-foot raft, which they kept tied up at the beach.
1: None of the boys could swim, and so they'd hold on to this wooden raft, kick their legs, and drift off into the cool lake. But here's the problem. You see, 25th Street Beach, where the boys got into the water, was blacks only. The whites only beach was just south at 29th Street. And there was this
0: invisible line between the two beaches that, informally, it was an unspoken agreement that nobody would cross. And as the boys
1: played in the water, they began drifting towards that invisible color line. What they didn't know is that a scuffle had broken out on the beach. Historian David Kugler says it started with an act of civil disobedience.
0: A group of blacks had come to the 29th Street Beach and said, look, we're going to swim here, and angry white men order them to leave. They do, but they come back with more African-American bathers. And so they start throwing uh, rocks at the whites who get reinforcements and come back and eventually drive the African-Americans out.
1: And that's about when someone on the white beach noticed those boys on their raft.
0: This young white man saw these black kids moving across that invisible line and became enraged. So he ran to the edge of the sand. He began throwing rocks at the boys on the raft who initially thought that it was just play.
1: The boys thought they were just having fun. They were going under and popping back up onto the
0: raft. He definitely
1: felt anger, and he was not playing a game. 17-year-old Eugene Williams Popped up at just the wrong moment. He was hit on the forehead and slipped under the water. The other boys rushed to the shore at the black beach and told the lifeguard. He started searching for Eugene. Now, each beach had its own police officer. The boys told a black cop what happened, and together they went to the white beach to identify the rock thrower. And when
0: the black officer went over to the white officer to confer with him about what was happening, the white officer took charge. But the white officer
1: refused to make an arrest. Whites and blacks began to argue. Fights broke out. And
0: there was a lot of chaos going on on the beach at that time. There were some people that did run into the water. Both black people and white people ran into the water to try to find Eugene and to save him. But it was too late. Eugene's body
1: was pulled from the water about a half an hour later. More police arrived at the beaches, and instead of arresting the white man who had just killed Eugene, they began to arrest a black man involved in the scuffle. When they went to put that man into the paddy wagon, another black man shot at the police officers from the crowd. Then a police officer fired back, killing the gunman and wounding two others.
0: That, on top of everything else, seems to have been the the last straw for both communities. That night, white gangs, most of them
1: made up of poor white Irish, got into Model T's, raced through the black neighborhood, and fired indiscriminately. The next day, white mobs chased down black workers leaving the stockyards and surrounding factories. One black laborer tried to escape out a side door and was chased and beaten and stabbed to death. Later that day, a group of black boys beat up and stabbed an old Italian peddler who died in the street. This went on for four straight days, with white mobs instigating most of the violence. The Illinois Reserve Militia was finally called in, and a massive rainstorm forced people off the streets, cooling the city. 23 black people had been killed, and 15 whites. More than 500 people were injured. Fires left about a 1,000 people homeless. So... That's one answer to Stephen Boone's question about how Chicago's race riots started, at least how they started that day in 1919. But really, the drowning, the standoff, the violence at the beach, and then across the city, it was part of a deep animosity between whites and blacks that had been building in Chicago for years. Tensions over housing, jobs, segregation, that was all building up to something. A collision, a confrontation, a reckoning was coming. Here's what was happening. The first wave of the Great Migration was underway, and African Americans were moving to Chicago in droves. It accelerated with World War I. Many white men enlisted just as factories and slaughterhouses ramped up production for the war efforts. It created a labor shortage, so black men flocked to the city for work.
0: Uh, and so in the space of two years, the black population in Chicago doubled. Uh, 50,000 new people came flooding into the city, and it changed the face of Chicago. Chicago was no paradise for Black people, but it had
1: its advantages compared to the South. For one thing, Blacks didn't have to live in fear of lynch mobs. Also, Blacks could vote. They could send their kids to better schools. And they could ride streetcars and sit in the front. Blacks even created a thriving social scene in what became known as the city's Black Belt, The poet Langston Hughes experienced it firsthand when he arrived in Chicago in 1918.
0: South State Street was in its glory then, a teeming Negro street with crowded theaters, restaurants, and cabarets, and excitement from noon to noon. Midnight was like day.
1: But if black people ventured into certain white neighborhoods, they were often met with violence. Hughes wrote about that, too.
0: The first Sunday I was in town, I went out walking alone to see what the city looked like. I wandered too far outside the Negro district over beyond Wentworth and was set upon and beaten by a group of white boys who said they didn't allow n****s in that neighborhood. I came home with both eyes blacked and a swollen jaw.
1: But beatings were just the start. If black families tried to rent or buy homes in those same white neighborhoods, they were often retaliated against. In the years leading up to the riots, there were dozens of bombings. Some targeted black homes in white neighborhoods. Others targeted the realtors and loan officers who served those black families. One bomb in February 1919 killed a six-year-old black girl. Yet in dozens of bombings, only two suspects were ever arrested. As black migrants continued to arrive in Chicago, available housing in the black belt got
0: extremely tight. It simply became untenable for all of these African-American people to, to live in this small strip of land that had been designated for them.
1: The Urban League helped Southern blacks get their bearings in Chicago. In one single day in 1917, the league counted 664 housing applicants and only 50 homes available to them. Many whites in the immigrant neighborhoods surrounding the Black Belt saw the Great Migration as an invasion. They saw black people as competition for political power and jobs. Hartfield says things grew even more tense in early 1919. That's when soldiers began heading back to Chicago because the war was officially over.
0: So the economy shrinks, the number of jobs shrunk, and at the same time you have all these soldiers coming back to take their jobs back. As is often the case um, in those situations, African Americans were the first people to be laid off. Black
1: veterans had just risked their lives making the world safe for democracy. But they returned to find themselves deprived of those same liberties that they had just fought to defend in Europe.
0: They weren't free to live where they wanted to. They weren't free to work where they wanted to. They weren't free to play where they wanted to.
1: And many of them weren't going to take it sitting down. So it's no wonder that in the summer of 1919, a small group of African-Americans decided it was time to test the color lines on the beach. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that white gangs that were determined to keep the pre-war racial order intact would seize the moment.
0: They were looking for an opportunity to blow the lid off. And so when this event happened at the beach, they said, this is it. This is our chance to really foment a race war. And for one week
1: in Chicago, they got their race war. So That's an answer to the first part of our question from Stephen Boone on how Chicago's 1919 race riots started. But remember, he also wanted to know how those riots changed the city. I'll tackle that next time, but here's a big idea we'll explore. After the riots, many Chicagoans longed for change, and some even sketched out a path toward better race relations.
0: That's where we see a hopeful Chicago looking forward to a future where such racial animosity will not exist.
1: City leaders and business people chose another path. We'll explore the way the race riots helped create the Chicago we live in today, next week. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Thanks to Alden Lowry for reading the part of Langston Hughes, sound effects courtesy of the BBC Sound Effects Archive and the Free Sound Project. I'm Jessica
0: Popovac.